In 2002, a mysterious disease began killing fish at a commercial aquaculture facility in North Carolina. Lots of fish. Over 21,000 striped bass died during the outbreak. And at the time, no one knew what caused this massive fish kill. Why did it happen? Would it happen again? Well, we now know that the culprit behind the fish kills is a type of algae that lives in freshwater and in estuaries, and it's called Euglena sanguinea. And that knowledge is thanks to research led by the U.S. Department of Agriculture and NOAA back in 2004. Now, at the time, this was a big surprise. Euglena is very well documented. In fact, it's been known since 1830. It was just that everyone thought that it was harmless. Well, it turns out that under the right conditions, Euglena can produce a potent, very deadly toxin. Well, today we're going to take a look at a new study led by the same two scientists from NOAA and the USDA from that 2004 breakthrough, and it takes what we know about this toxin one step further, and in a surprising direction. It turns out that the compound produced by Euglena, a compound that can kill fish and mammals in the wild, may not be all bad. The very fact that this compound is so deadly means that if we can harness it, it may offer new ways to treat human problems. It's Wednesday, September 30th, 2009, and this is Making Waves from NOAA's National Ocean Service. Today we hear from Dr. Peter Muller. He's a chemist with NOAA's Center for Human Health Risk, part of the National Ocean Service's National Centers for Coastal Ocean Science. Peter works at the Hollings Marine Laboratory in Charleston, South Carolina, and he's one of the lead authors of a new study about this powerful fish-killing toxin, and that's slated to appear in an upcoming issue of the journal Toxicon. Well, Peter leads the Toxin Natural Products Chemistry Program, and his job is to figure out what's going on, chemically speaking, when unexplained events happen, like when 21,000 bass mysteriously die in North Carolina. But when something bad like this happens in the wild, Peter's lab gets samples of the bad stuff, and he and his team go to work. The first step is to purify the samples to tease out the active compounds that are causing the problem. Here's Peter. Well, I always call myself to my students in kind of an NCIS or CSI type of a program. Something has happened in an event, a mammal die or whatever, and, and somebody has made an observation that they think the causative agent is this organism or it's the seawater or it's the sediment or it's tissue of some sort, dirt, it doesn't matter. They bring that to my lab. Now, whatever they bring, this starting material that we're going to work with, this tissue, mud, water, is full of tens of thousands, if not millions of compounds. The purification process is something that I have to do uh, to tease each chemical apart from the other so that I end up with an analytically pure compound. Now the next step is to figure out the molecular structure of a given active compound to see how it works. He said it's a lot like trying to figure out who a person is through a fingerprint. In chemistry, we talk about structure of a molecule and its function. Aspirin works the way aspirin works because of its molecular structure, not because it has some inerrant activity. That structure, once it gets into a mammalian system, such as humans, does its job of analgesic or reducing swelling. That structure, then, is what we want to key in on. So to understand structure, on the one hand, we have to have a three-dimensional picture of that molecule. That, in turn, will tell us probably, or at least give us clues to ask questions, how is it working in a mammalian system? Where is it working in a mammalian system? 
And frankly, it tells us a lot about its chemistry. I mean, it's like um, your fingerprint and my fingerprint. We're different, and our fingerprints are different. Once I have your fingerprint, I know who you are. So from Noah's point of view, when there is a, um, say, a shellfish toxin, people eat oysters and get sick. They'll bring me oyster tissue and ask me, you know, what is it that made these people sick? Well, I need to find out that fingerprint of a molecule because uh, that's going to be the culprit, looking for the bad guy. At the same time, we then use that fingerprint as um, in to develop what we would call detection or monitoring tools. Um, I get too specific, but we have special analytical techniques which will then find that material, that compound, in any matrix where we find it, and then we can alert the public. While he and a team of researchers discovered that euglena algae were behind the fish killings back in 2002, that study only showed that the algae were producing toxic effects, that the algae were, in fact, responsible for the dying fish. This new study takes it one step further. Um, It's one thing to show that an organism has toxic effects, but one of the things that has to be done is to demonstrate that there is a true toxic entity. That may seem trivial, but it's not always so easy. In this case, we did find that the organism was producing a chemical that was responsible for the toxic effects. That chemical is called euglenophycin. So once Peter and his team teased out the toxin and unlocked its molecular structure, they turned their attention to a new type of investigation looking for ways, as Peter says, to see if the deadly chemical can be turned from the dark side to do good work. What if euglenophycin, this very potent toxin, could be used to kill cancer cells? Well, if you consider that we use toxic chemicals, better known as chemotherapy, to shrink tumors and kill cancer cells, why not test natural toxins like euglenophycin to see how they work? Many of the natural toxins that Peter looks at in his lab, after all, are much more toxic than the compounds used today for chemotherapy. And if they do the job effectively and kill cancer cells, it would take much less toxin to do the job than what we're now using. The highly toxic compounds that we look at, um, it's, it's, it's very difficult to describe how much more toxic they are than many of the compounds that are out there for chemotherapy and things like this. They're just so much more toxic. But when one stops and realizes that, um, and I use cancer as a cancer chemotherapeutics as a model, uh, these are toxins. I mean, we inject them in the body to help kill cancer cells. Well, as I've been working through the years, and you get to see the selective activity that they have, as well as the high activity, many, many, many times more active than the current pharmaceuticals that we're using today. Why can't we at least try to push them into, um, again, as an example, um, cancer therapy? Because if they're so much more toxic, we don't need as much of them conceptually to do the same job. And that, in turn, should help us reduce side effects if we don't have to be putting so much into our systems uh, for that. So that's been a big push of ours, um, that as we do Noah's mission, um, finding these compounds uh, that are causing the deleterious effects that we see, and then turning around and uh, turning them to the good side. How does Peter figure out if a toxin might have a use in treating cancer? Well, here's how it works. Samples of mammalian cells, cells from mammals, are tested out to see how they interact with the potent toxins identified in his lab. And if the mammal cells die, that's an indication that the toxin may have at least some cancer-treating potential, so then more studies are done. In the case of euglenophycin, 
a colleague of Peter's was working on renal cancer and decided to test it out. And so far, the results are really promising. The uses of this particular toxin may not be limited to potentially treating cancer, Peter explains. When we found this, discerned the structure of euglenophycin, um, we, you know, good chemistry, we'd go into the literature and find out if it's known. And it was a new molecule in and of itself, but it's related in structure to fire ant venoms, uh, the solenopsins, they're called. And a lot of people have and are still working on a lot of bioactivity with the solenopsins, um, which include um, their antibacterial, their antibiotics, their antifungals, and they actually work on, oddly enough, another really nasty uh, marine organism called microcystis. Uh, this is a uh, microcystis affects drinking water throughout the country, and in fact, in Lake Michigan and some of these others, it, it can become a real big hazard. In the presence of euglena, microcystis growth is greatly retarded, and that that shows some very specific activity that we would like to go in and harvest, and and maybe we can have a natural algicide um, that we can ultimately use to control or mediate another problem. That's the advantage of my job. I really love that part of my work. While it's fantastic news that this toxin may someday provide new tools to help humans, it's important to remember that it's out there in the wild, and out there it may pose a real threat to fish, animals, and humans. Peter said that the intense toxicity produced by the algae is something we need to be concerned about. One of the things that just happened recently, uh, about two weeks ago, on the euglenophycin story, is that historically, when we uh, since 2004, it was killing fish. As of, I think it was two weeks ago in Michigan, um, some calf, a calf died, or maybe more than one, I'm not sure, died drinking water out of a pond, and the organism responsible that was just identified was euglena. Now, that'll be the first case where a mammal was actually shown to die. What that means for me now is that we have to develop detection methodologies for drinking water, um, reservoirs, lakes, ponds, rivers, things like this, to see to it that if that organism's present, we're, we're taking the right precautions. It appears the toxicity in and of itself is now easier to detect. And um, in some of the reports that I have now, and in fact, including in the paper that we published, it now affects probably close to two dozen states in the U.S. already. And my guess is it's affecting a lot more. Now, at this point, you may be wondering how such a toxic chemical could have gone unnoticed or unreported for so long. Is euglena producing toxins more often now? Or could it be that this toxin has always been around and we're just unlocking the mystery now because we have better tools? Now, Peter said this is a hard question to answer, but the answer may be somewhere in the middle. Our monitoring and detection tools have become so much more sophisticated and much more reliable. So on the one hand, yes, I think we're looking for things better than we have done in the past, and maybe that's why we're finding problems and identifying the problems that have always existed, but now we can characterize them. But on the surface, it does appear um, the activity of some of these microtoxins is increasing in incidence. And so whether these organisms are, being, are capable of developing toxin-producing mechanisms over time, you know, could also be happening. We see this happen with a number of uh, dinoflagellate. These marine algae seem to have that ability to turn toxin production on and off depending upon environmental stress. So it appears that way. So I, I know I'm landing solidly on both sides of that fence. We don't really know. Um, but uh, it does appear that these toxic events are increasing in incidence. Well, what's clear now is that there's much more to learn about euglenophycin. 
And Peter said that the main goal is to test the toxic compound now for a variety of uses. And at the same time, research will continue that will hopefully lead to ways to help us detect, monitor, and control the production of the toxin in nature. The next step was a couple of things. We did patent, uh, get a patent out on this um, for both its cancer and some of these other activities. And what that allows us to do now is we're going to have to produce enough of this stuff to test, either through natural sources, actually mass culture euglena, which my colleague in USDA, that's that's kind of what he's doing right now. And then when we have milligrams to grams of the toxin, we will submit this to the various people that would like to test it and potentially develop it for its its uses, such as any bacterial, any cancer, any fungal, etc. So we can actually get some commercial development out of this material um, for, for good. <laughs> that's the, the research, the R&D by and large, is pretty much done on our end. Um, we're just going to be crunching purification processes now. I won't say that's trivial, but uh, the fun part is, is our end of it, the difficult end, is, is, is over. Now, my colleague has to learn, is working on what happens in nature to either enhance or turn off toxin production. That's a real fascinating area because if we can understand that, maybe we can mitigate or remediate or stop the production of toxin even in nature. Um, that's out of my immediate expertise, but it's a fun, fun area to watch these people work in. Many thanks to Dr. Peter Moeller from NOAA's Center for Human Health Risk for taking the time to talk with us over the phone. And again, the Center for Human Health Risk is part of the National Ocean Service's National Centers for Coastal Ocean Science. Now let's leave Peter with the last word. Nature has the compounds out there for us, and uh, it's amazing if we just go out and look for them uh, based on activity. I think that we're going to see a whole new generation of much more selective, much milder pharmaceuticals and antibiotics than we've ever seen before. And it's because there's a a new rejuvenation of discovery to go out there and find them. Well, if you're looking for more news and information about our oceans and coasts, head over to the NOS website. We are at oceanservice.noaa.gov. If you have questions about this week's podcast, about the National Ocean Service, or about our ocean, don't hesitate to send us an email. We're at nos.info at noaa.gov. We'd really like to hear from you. And that's all for this week. Now, let's bring in the ocean. This is Making Waves from NOAA's National Ocean Service. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode.